The Duty of Social Covenanting Illustrated and Enforced by Thomas Spruill, Pastor Reformed Presbyterian Congregation, Pittsburgh To the members of the congregation under my pastoral care Beloved Brethren Whether, notwithstanding your request, it was my duty to publish it Circumstances seemed at length to indicate the propriety of publication, the more so, as I have not seen in anything written on the subject of governing, the seasonableness of the duty at the present time noticed. In some things I find myself anticipated by the excellent work of the Reverend D. Scott on the distinctive principles of our church. But as that does not touch the point hinted at above, as from the nature of such a work it could not, and as this discourse was nearly all written before that came into my hands, I judged it best to let it come to the light. That our covenant God would bless it, and make it the means of awakening in the church more earnest attention to the important duty, which it is intended to illustrate, and enforce that so the bride may make herself ready for the marriage of the Lamb and the kingdoms of this world become, by national covenanting, the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, is the earnest prayer of your pastor, the author. Allegheny August, 1841 The Duty of Social Covenanting 2 Corinthians 8, 5 They first gave their own selves to the Lord. Emulation in the good cause is laudable. Christians are commanded to consider one another, to provoke unto love and to good works. In the minds of those who are possessed of genuine liberality, the judicious and seasonable commendation of the good deeds of others produces no painful emotion. Instead of indulging in feelings of envy they will rejoice in their diligence and success, and stir themselves up to imitate their example. It is to this constitutional principle of our nature that Paul addresses himself, when he exhibits to the Macedonian saints the piety and liberality of the Macedonian churches. At the same time he leaves the latter no ground of boasting. What they did was by the grace of God bestowed on them. Paul was very attentive, in the various places he labored, to make collections for the poor saints at Jerusalem. He had, in his first epistle to the Corinthians, both enjoined the duty and prescribed the manner of making their collections. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. It would appear that they had been remiss in relation to this duty. In the second epistle he repeats the injunction, and to excite them to greater diligence and liberality, he tells them what had been done by the churches of Macedonia. In the great trial of affliction the abundance of their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power, yea and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty, that we would receive the gift, and take upon us the fellowship of ministering to the saints. The apostle takes particular notice of the manner, in which they had attended to this duty. Not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God. The Macedonian churches gave themselves to God by covenanting. No other satisfactory exposition can be given of our text. It cannot mean converts joining the church, for the act is predicated of churches and not of individuals. Nor does it mean their participation of the Lord's Supper, for certainly the apostle hoped that the churches, which he had planted would show forth the Lord's death. The only fair and rational interpretation is, that these churches either general assembly, or in their respective congregations, solemnly covenanted to be the Lord's. And as the Apostle evidently commends them for this transaction, their approved example is a warrant for all churches, to go and do likewise. We deduce the following doctrine from the text, social covenanting with God is a moral and permanent duty. Our plan is, want to make some general remarks on this duty. 2. To show when God calls to engage in it. 3. To apply the subject. 1. General remarks on the duty. 1. Covenanting with God is the swearing of an oath of fidelity to Him. It is the act of subjects engaging in the most solemn manner, to be true to their king. This was the import of the covenant entered into by the kingdom of Judah at the inauguration of Joash and Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people. 2 Kings, 11, 17 God's right to man is not based on any conventional arrangement between him and them. It is original and absolute. All souls are mine. 
it is he that made us, and not we ourselves, we are his people. It is however their indispensable duty, as rational and moral creatures, to recognize that relation, which by a divine constitution they sustain to their creator. And to give all the security which he requires, that they will be his true and faithful subjects. It is perfectly reasonable that intelligent beings governed by moral laws, should give their consent to the constitution under which infinite wisdom has placed them, and swear allegiance to the Lord of the whole earth, by whom it is administered. There is something analogous to this in the constitution of human governments. Nations usually require an oath of allegiance in order to citizenship. And though the principle has been wickedly misapplied, by requiring of man oaths of fidelity to governments, that are not in a state of voluntary subjection to the Lord and his anointed, yet the fact that they do so, demonstrates that men have naturally, some sense of the duty of governing. The scriptures are plain and pointed in relation to this duty. The churches of Macedonia gave their own selves to the Lord. In doing so they recognized the authority of God, as their lawgiver and king, and entered into an obligation to be his faithful subjects. This duty is also enjoined in Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The allusion here is to offerings under the law. The cattle of a thousand hills are the Lord's. This the worshiper acknowledged when he presented his offering, and by this act he made a formal dedication of all he had to the Lord. The spirit of the injunction is, still binding. We are required to give ourselves wholly to the Lord. This dedication on our part does not constitute a new relation between us and our Maker. By it we express our approbation of a relation already existing, and engage to perform all the duties devolving on us as his moral subjects. It is our reasonable service. Most reasonable that the creature should swear allegiance to the Creator, that the redeemed should vow fidelity to their Redeemer. Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. It is fit that this pledge should be given under the solemnity of an oath. Swearing is an act of religious worship, in which there is a direct appeal to the searcher of hearts. It pleased God, that he might show to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, to confirm it by an oath. When he made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater he swore by himself. This gracious act of condescension he was pleased to perform that we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. And is it not most reasonable that on our part, when we are taking the Lord to be our God, and engaging to be his people, we should confirm the deed by the same solemn sanction. God's covenant with us is not only our warrant for covenanting, but also with respect to its sanction, it is a pattern for our imitation. As he sware by himself, so we should swear by him and to him. In this way Israel covenanted on the plains of Moab. Their engagement is called a covenant and an oath. Deuteronomy 29, 14 the covenanters in the days of Nehemiah entered into a curse and into an oath. Nehemiah 10, 28 Whatever variety of forms may have been observed by Old Testament saints in ratifying their covenants, there can be no doubt, that in every instance there was an appeal to the divine omniscience for the sincerity of the covenanters. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and swear by his name. Deuteronomy 6, 13 he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Isaiah 65, 16. 2. The whole law of God must be embraced in covenanting. This was done in the covenant made at Mount Sinai. Moses told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words, which the Lord hath said will we do. Exodus 24, 3. In this obligation there was no reservation. They bound themselves to keep the whole law of God. And of the same extent was the obligation of the covenant entered into by the Jews after their return from Babylon. They entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, and his judgments, and his statutes. Nehemiah 10, 29. 
when the believer in the moment of union to Christ, joins himself to the Lord in a perpetual covenant, he binds his soul to do all God has commanded. On no other terms would his act of personal dedication to acceptable to God. He must renounce all sin and engage to perform all duty, or he cannot take hold of God's covenant. No creature has the power to lower the standard of moral obligation. The covenant engagement, which falls short of binding to take the whole word of God, as the only rule of faith and practice, to believe and profess all divine truth, and to obey all divine commands, is but a mockery of God, a perversion of a divine institution. To limit the obligation of the covenant by engaging to perform our duty, only so far as we may be enabled, would render it worse than useless. This limitation could be pleaded as an excuse for every sin committed, and the prisoner at the bar of his own conscience would be acquitted of the crime of covenant breaking. Such obligations instead of increasing, would have a direct tendency to diminish our motives to obedience. It strengthens our position to remark, that the divine law is called the covenant. He wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant the Ten Commandments. Exodus 34, 28 Here the covenant, and the Ten Commandments, are identical. The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. As it flows from the authority of God, and binds the subjects to obedience, it is the law, and as it respects the obligations, into which the subjects voluntarily enter it is the covenant. Sin is called a transgression of the covenant, as well as of the law, they have transgressed my covenant, and trespassed against my law. Hosea 8, 1. This is true of every sin committed by those who are in covenant with God. Hence the inference is, that the obligation of God's covenant is coextensive with the demands of his law. It is sometimes alleged, that in as much as we commit sin daily, we expose ourselves to the guilt of perjury by covenanting to keep the whole law of God. This allegation arises from a mistaken view, of what constitutes perjury under an oath of fidelity. It is only by the deliberate and habitual renunciation of the whole or a part of the obligation of such an oath that perjury is committed. The violation of God's law by those who have sworn to observe it, is indeed covenant-breaking, but not perjury, unless it be preceded in form or in fact by a renunciation of covenant obligation. The covenanter does not swear that, as a matter of fact, he will from that time and onward render an unsinning obedience to the divine law. Such an oath would be rash and presumptuous. He does, however, under the solemnity of an oath, recognize perfect obedience to the whole law to be his duty, and declares that it is his will, nay, his most earnest desire, to render such obedience. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. 3. This duty is binding on communities under the New Testament dispensation. In support of this position we adduce the very remarkable prophecy in Isaiah 19, 18-21, In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan, and swear to the Lord of hosts in that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in the day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation, yea they shall vow a vow unto the Lord, and perform it. Without examining minutely into the precise time and circumstances of the fulfillment of this prophecy, it is sufficient for our present purpose to show, that it refers to a time yet future, and of course under the New Testament dispensation. No altar has yet been erected to the Lord in the land of Egypt. The Egyptians have not yet known the Lord nor done sacrifice in oblation. As the prophecy is yet to be fulfilled, so the promise connected with it remains to be performed. When the great city which spiritually is called Egypt, Revelation 11, 8, shall have an altar to the Lord in its midst and a pillar to the Lord at its border the worship of God established in its purity in the church and the law of the Lord made the main pillar of the political superstructure, when the inhabitants of the city shall do sacrifice and oblation then five cities the cities of the nations, Revelation 16, 19, shall swear to the Lord of hosts. These predictions containing promises of good to the subjects of them are preceptive. What God has said they shall do, he commands them to perform. It is the duty of not only five cities of mystical Egypt, but of all its cities of all the cities and kingdoms on the face of the earth, to swear to the Lord of hosts, to vow a vow and perform it. 
and in this way will the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Our text adds confirmation to this important truth. The Macedonian churches gave themselves to the Lord. Most likely, the noble Berians who received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so, took the lead in this solemn work. They had learned from the lively oracles, that it was the duty of communities as well as individuals to vow, and pay to the Lord their God. And by their example and influence the Christians at Philippi, Thessalonica, Amphipolis, and Apollonia, would be induced also to give themselves to the Lord. It at least furnishes a strong presumption, that the duty of social covenanting in New Testament times is found in the Old Testament scriptures, that the Bereans, who were scrupulously careful to look to the scriptures for a warrant for everything, were engaged in such a transaction. We might reason the permanence of this duty, and the obligation to observe it under the present dispensation, from the fact that covenanting was not a typical institution. All the ceremonies of the Old Testament worship were indeed done away in Christ. But of what was covenanting typical? Can it be thought, that while before the death of Christ, believers were required to engage personally to be the Lord's, when they took hold of his covenant, they are now free from such a requisition? And yet this will naturally follow from the sediment, that covenanting is typical, for if it be so, it is abolished by the appearing of the antitype. It may be alleged, that this duty is moral in relation to individuals but typical in relation to communities. But as the distinction in the allegation between the moral covenanting of individuals and the typical covenanting of communities, is without the slightest foundation in scripture, we forbear to notice it, and unhesitatingly assert that covenanting was not typical but moral in respect both to individuals and communities. And being moral it has survived the abolition of ceremonial institutions and continues and will continue till the end of time, the indispensable duty of all the moral subjects of God's government, whether individual or social. It is also a precious privilege, securing to them who in faith bind their souls to God, the certainty and perpetuity of the manifestations of his love. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. 4. The obligation of social covenants descends to posterity. The covenant into which Israel entered on the plains of Moab embraced their children to the latest generation. This is evident from the words of God to them by Moses on the occasion. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day, before the Lord our God, and also with him who is not with us here this day. Deuteronomy 29 14, 15. The two classes described, as included in the covenant, by the terms him that standeth here with us this day, and him that is not with us here this day, must mean children then present, and posterity yet unborn. This covenant was made with Israel in their successive generations and for the breach of it long afterwards, a sore curse is denounced against them by the prophet Jeremiah. Curse be the man, that obeyeth not the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers, in the day, that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. Jeremiah 11, 3, 4. We produce from scripture two remarkable instances of the descent of covenant obligation. When Joseph was dying, he took an oath of the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. Genesis 50, 25. When Israel came out of Egypt, long after those who had sworn to Joseph were laid in their graves, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. Exodus 13, 19 Moses felt and scrupulously fulfilled the obligation of the oath taken by the people of Israel long before he was born. The other instance is the case of the Jibeonites to whom the princes of Israel swear by the Lord God of Israel, that they would let them live. Joshua 9, 15-18 Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah slew the Jibeonites, for which violation of covenant obligation, God sent three years of famine on the land in the reign of David. 2 Samuel 21, 1, 2 
the ordinance of circumcision under the Old Testament dispensation, and of baptism under the now, serves to illustrate and confirm this principle. Abraham circumcised Isaac, when he was eight days old, and this was a standing rule in the administration of that ordinance so long as it was in force. Infant children are legitimate subjects of baptism. Those who receive this ordinance professedly take hold of God's covenant, and bind themselves to obey his laws. But how can children of eight days make such a profession, or enter into such an obligation? Only as identifying with their parents in this transaction. The parents represent the children, and from the very nature of representation the children are bound by all the engagements which their parents make in their name. Covenant obligation descends to posterity, else children receive the baptismal seal of the covenant of grace in vain. We may reason in support of this point, from the common sense and the common practice of men. No intelligent man ever thought that a nation was freed from an obligation, when the persons, by whom it was given cease by death or otherwise, to be its constituent members. Such a principle reduced to practice would soon break up all national intercourse. Men in giving bonds, bind their heirs and assigns, on no other principle than that for which we are contending. This descent of covenant obligation results from the fact, that the identity of moral persons is not lost, by the changes of their constituent parts. They live, exercise their rights, and fulfill their obligations in the succeeding generations, of which they are composed. These remarks apply eminently to the church. She is an immortal corporation. A family soon loses its identity. Nations by their rejection of the revealed will of God sow the seeds of destruction in their very constitutions. But the church is imperishable. She is the same moral person, that was constituted by the mediator in the Garden of Eden the same, that covenanted in the days of Noah of Abraham and in all similar transactions, down to the present time. And by all these engagements she is bound to be a faithful spouse to Christ her husband. I will betroth thee unto me forever, yea I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. 5. By this ordinance God dispenses the blessings of the covenant of grace. All the transactions of God with his people are covenant transactions. He has in the covenant with his chosen secure the stability of his throne and the perpetuity of his seed. With each believer, in the day of his effectual calling, God makes an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. This is done by giving to him, through Christ, a personal interest in the covenant of grace, and a right to all its blessings. The believer is, by the Holy Spirit, convinced of the suitableness of the salvation offered, and is persuaded and enabled to embrace Christ its glorious author. This he does by entering into a personal covenant with God in Christ, assenting to the plan of salvation, consenting to the terms on which it is offered, and engaging in the most solemn manner, to take the Lord to be his God, and to fear, and love, and serve him always with his whole heart. This consummates the spiritual marriage, and the believer, by virtue of his union to Christ, is endowed with a good dowry with all the fullness, which it pleased the Father should dwell in the head of the covenant. All things needful for life or death, for time or for eternity are his, for he is Christ's, and Christ is God's. In the light of these blessed and consoling truths, we may see the advantages resulting to communities, from entering into covenant with God. The Bible contains promises to man in his social as well as in his individual capacity. The scriptures abound with promises to families, to nations, and to the church. Now, all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 In him they are made and in him fulfilled, and it is only by virtue of a covenant connection with him that the promised blessings are received. Hence, not only the church, but the nations of the earth, must enter into covenant with God in order to partake of the promised good. By swearing allegiance to him who is the head of all principality and power, nations act the part of loyal subjects, and receive to themselves those unspeakable national blessings, which result from his peaceful reign. He shall judge the poor of the people, he shall save the children of the needy, and shall break in pieces the oppressor. Blessed is the nation, whose God is the Lord, and the people, 
whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. The manner in which the Israelites govern in it at Mount Sinai, and in the land of Moab, adds confirmation to the point we are examining. We have the account of the former in Exodus 24, 3-8. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words, which the Lord hath said will we do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, and builded an altar under the hill, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings, and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people and they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. The blood of the victims, here called the blood of the covenant, undoubtedly typified the blood of Christ. By blood this covenant was ratified, and as the transaction was beyond dispute a national one, the sprinkling of the blood on the people denoted the removal of their national sin, and their interest as a nation in God's covenant ratified by the blood of His well-beloved Son, and secured on their part by the solemn transaction, in which they had just been engaged. At the renewal of this covenant in the land of Moab, Moses in his address to the people tells them, Deuteronomy 30, 11-14, This commandment, which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldst say, Who shall go up for us to heaven, and bring it unto us, that we may hear it, and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea, that thou shouldst say, Who shall go over the sea for us, and bring it unto us that we may hear it, and do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth, and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. In Romans 10, 6-9, we have an inspired commentary on this passage The Righteousness, which is a faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thy heart, who shall ascend into heaven. That is, to bring down Christ from above or, who shall descend into the deep. That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, and in thy heart that is, the word of faith, which we preach that, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The apostles' object is to show that righteousness by faith was known to the church under the former dispensation. What Moses calls the commandment, Paul calls the word of faith. Some indeed view this as an accommodation of the words of Moses, to suit the apostles' design, but on the principle, that God dispenses his gracious covenant to men, by bringing them individually and socially into covenant with him, it is a fair and instructive exposition. The covenanting Israelites were informed that God did not require of them, in order to either their individual or national salvation, an impossibility like mounting to heaven, or transporting themselves to the utmost limits of the universe. The commandment under the law which had a shadow of good things to come, is the word of faith under the gospel, and both these are contrasted with legal righteousness, which Moses describes when he says, The man, which doeth these things shall live by them. From the whole it appears, that God in bringing his people into covenant with himself, taught them to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, for all covenant blessings purchased with his precious blood. He shall sprinkle many nations. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 6. Covenanting is an extraordinary duty. Some duties are of the ordinary kind such as prayer, praise, reading and hearing the word. These are to be attended to always as we have opportunity. But covenanting like fasting is an extraordinary duty. It is to be performed once and repeated, as often as God calls to it by the voice of his providence. The necessity for a repetition of covenanting does not arise from any effect that the lapse of time may have in weakening our voluntary bond. As the principle, the covenant obligation descends to and binds posterity, is an essential part of the doctrine we are discussing. It cannot be supposed that the bond at any time needs to be strengthened. It is probable, 
that a mistake on this subject has led to loose views in relation to the renewal of covenants. Periodical, social covenanting seems to imply in those who do so, a belief that our voluntary obligation would soon cease to be of use to us unless it were renewed. This is not the case. The Church is as much bound now by every covenant she has entered into since her organization in the Garden of Eden, as at each respective time of covenanting. The obligation does not need to be strengthened, but our sense of it needs to be quickened, our assurance of an interest in God's covenant renewed, and our acknowledgement of Him to be our Lord frequently repeated. On this principle of renewing their solemn obligations the people of God have frequently acted. The covenanting in the land of Moab was a renovation of the covenant at Sinai. Shortly before the death of Joshua it was again renewed at Shechem with great solemnity. Joshua 24 25, 26. The same thing appears to have been done at the inauguration of Saul. Samuel wrote the manner of the kingdom in a book, and laid it up before the Lord. 1 Samuel 10, 25. The manner of the kingdom can mean nothing else than the duties mutually devolving on the king and the people. We may well infer, that on the rehearsal of these duties the parties bound themselves respectively to perform them and that the whole nation vowed fidelity to their Lord and King. When David was proclaimed king at Hebron the elders of Israel came, and he made a league with them before the Lord. There was a mutual engagement by the parties, and the whole nation with David at its head in it to be the Lord's. After the revolt of the ten tribes the kingdom of Judah frequently observed this duty. We instance the reign of Asa, 2 Chronicles 15, 12 of Joash, 2 Kings 11. 17 of Ezekiah, 2 Chronicles 39, 10 and of Josiah, 2 Kings 23, 3. Nehemiah and the Jews who had returned from Babylon engaged in covenanting. These instances with others that could be produced serve to show that covenanting is an extraordinary duty to be attended to according to the indications of divine providence. This leads to the second topic of discussion. 2 To show when God calls to this duty. 1. At the organization of ecclesiastical and civil communities. Though the church is really one, the only one of her mother, she nevertheless subsists in visibly distinct organizations. This arises in some instances from sin, and in others from necessity. Whenever conflicting views of divine truth separate the disciples of the Lord, it is on the part of those whose faith and practice are not according to the law and the testimony, a sinful separation. The church however, may and does subsist in different communities, all walking by the same rule, and minding the same thing, without violating her unity. It does not appear as a charge against any of the seven Asiatic churches that they were not all united in one visible organization. When owing to the extent of territory included within the limits of the church, or any other insuperable difficulty, there cannot be a supreme judicatory over, all who are perfectly joined in the same mind and in the same judgment, it becomes a matter of necessary duty, to have a plurality of coordinate synods, each exercising supreme jurisdiction over that part of the church under its supervision. It is so with the Reformed Presbyterian Church. In Scotland, Ireland, and the United States, though under the supervision of three supreme coordinate synods, she is really one united in holding all the attainments of the Reformation. It is only in this view of the subject, that an ecclesiastical community can have, since the organization of the Church in the Garden of Eden, a legitimate origin. Error and schism furnish no apology for rending the body mystical of Christ. Branches thus torn from the vine and planted apart, however much they may seem to flourish, are not the planting of the Lord. Unless they return from their wandering, and by professing the whole truth, and binding themselves to obey all the commands of God, endeavor to heal the breaches, which they have made in Zion, they shall be rooted up, east forth as a branch, and be withered. When the people of God find themselves in circumstances which render a distinct ecclesiastical organization necessary, then only, are they warranted to form themselves into a community visibly distinct from, but really united with their brethren of the same faith. And the first step must be that taken by the churches of Macedonia, to give their own selves to the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is the stone, that is laid in Zion. Other foundation can no man lay. 
On this foundation every spiritual edifice must be located, in order to be permanent. But it is only by taking hold of God's covenant, that any can build on that foundation. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ unites the believer to the head of the corner. By entering personally into covenant with God, he binds his soul to be for him and not for another. And in no other way can the church the building of mercy, be located on the sure foundation. She must make herself ready for the marriage of the Lord, and join herself to him in a perpetual, covenant not to be forgotten. It is thus that the witnesses 100 years ago, unfurled the banner of the covenant in the United States. Though without any formal ecclesiastical organization, they considered it their duty to give themselves to the Lord. They renewed their covenant engagements. It would have been well if this transaction of the church in their primary meetings, had been repeated when organized under a judicatory. One this is the duty of nations as well as of churches. Nations are not bound together by the ties that unite the church. National oneness is neither promised nor enjoined. God has not given to them, as he has to the church, one unalterable form of government. Their rise and their fall are settled in the purpose and effected in the providence of God. God is the judge, he puteth down one and setteth up another. When, in the administrations of providence, the way is opened for any portion of the human family, to promote the legitimate ends of civil government their own good interests of the church and the glory of God, they should embrace the opportunity, and unite themselves in civil compact. And in doing so, they should first give their own selves to the Lord. Their constitution must contain an explicit acknowledgement of the authority of God and Christ, as well as a solemn engagement, to obey the divine law. In this way alone can they comply with the high and solemn injunction of the Father. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Psalm 2, 10-12 A kiss given by a subject to his prince is an expression of his allegiance. When Samuel kissed Saul he gave a token of his fidelity. The command to kings to kiss the Son requires them, so soon as they are kings' nations so soon as they become nations, to do national homage by swearing allegiance to the Lord's anointed. This was the course pursued, by divine direction, at the organization of the tribes of Israel into a political community. At Mount Sinai, at the suggestion of Jethro, and by the appointment of God, Moses chose able men out of all Israel, and made them heads over all the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Exodus 18, 25. Their God proposed the terms of his covenant, and promised that they would keep his covenant then they should be a peculiar treasure to him above all people, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Exodus 19, 5, 6. It was to these terms that they answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken will we do. Verse 8. It is worthy of notice that this response was given by the elders of Israel in their official capacity, as well as by all the people. Here at the very commencement of their organized civil community, they pledged themselves to do all that the Lord had commanded. They first gave their own selves to the Lord. Reason lends its aid to strengthen their position. A community so soon as it exists, is a subject of the government of God, and under obligation to obey His laws and should not its recognition of that obligation be coeval with its own existence? Can a state be conceived, in which a subject of the divine government is under no obligation to bind itself, to obey the whole law of God? The obligation to obey includes the obligation to promise obedience. The two are inseparable, and what God has joined together let not man put asunder. Indeed it is by covenanting only, that vitality is infused into any moral association. Without the society is life the civil rulers are but the carcasses of kings, in high places. Let them put away the carcasses of their kings, far from me, and I will dwell in the midst of them forever. Ezekiel 43, 7-9 2. After a season of covenant breaking. It was in response to a call of this kind, that the people of Israel renewed their covenant in the reign of Joash. 2 Kings 11, 17 
the whole nation under the wicked Ahaziah and the subsequent usurpation of his mother, had most heinously broken their covenant engagements. The connection of Ahaziah with the family of Ahab is recorded as furnishing the immediate occasion of developing his corrupt principles. He walked in the way of the house of Ahab, and did evil in the sight of the Lord, as did the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. This was mingling with the heathen and learning their way, for Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, was a Zidonian, and a vile idolatress. Idolatry was a most aggravated breach of covenant engagement. Against it the Israelites had pledged themselves in their covenant at Sinai, in the renewal of it on the plains of Moab, and at Shechem. Thou shalt make no covenant with them and with their gods, for if thou serve their gods it will surely be a snare to thee. Exodus 23, 32, 33 I make this covenant and this oath with you, lest there should be among you man or woman, family or tribe, whose heart turneth away from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of these nations. Deuteronomy 29, 14-18 If ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt, and consume you. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 20, 21 But they break God's covenant. So deeply had they sunk into idolatry that at the end of the usurpation of Athaliah, Baal had his house, and his altars, and his images, and his priests in the land. 2 Kings 11, 18 in such a state of things, a reformation was commenced by the instrumentality of Jehoiada the priest, which placed a covenanted king on a covenanted throne. Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people, that they should be the Lord's people. It cannot be doubted by any who attentively examine this subject, that the pious and faithful priest was moved to renew the covenant, by the sad declension and covenant breaking with which he was surrounded. And he availed himself of the favorable opportunity, when the hearts of the people were united in sustaining the young prince against a wicked and cruel usurper, to bring them again into a state of professed and public allegiance to the Lord their God. The renovation of the covenant by Hezekiah farther confirms the point under consideration. In the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, which had been shut, and brought in the priests and Levites who had been driven out by his wicked father. 2 Chronicles 29, 3-7 The worship of God had been sadly corrupted. Hezekiah directed the Levites to sanctify themselves in the house of the Lord, and to carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. Lamenting the deep degeneracy into which the nation had sunk, he formed the design of renewing the covenant. Now it is in mine heart, to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel. He felt himself called to this duty by the numerous instances of covenant breaking, which his elevated position enabled him to discover. We adduce but one more instance from scripture, in proof of the seasonableness of this duty after a time of covenant breaking, it is the case of Josiah, 2 Kings 23. The prophet Hilda, in expounding the book of the law found in the house of the Lord, detailed the sins by which the nation had broken covenant with God, and provoked a sore displeasure. They have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods. Chapter 22, 17 This alarming announcement awaked the king to a sense of his duty. He gathered together all the people, and read in their ears the book of the covenant. And the king stood by a pillar, and made a covenant to walk after the Lord, and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book, and all the people stood to the covenant. Chapter 23, 3 We reason in proof of this position, from the relation, which the church sustains to Christ. She is the bride, the Lamb's wife. He has betrothed her to him in loving kindness and in faithfulness. Every violation of her marriage covenant is spiritual adultery. But he does not apply to her the law of divorce. They say, if a man put away his wife, and she go from him, and become another man's, shall he return to her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 3, 1 He is graciously willing to receive her, 
though she may have treacherously departed from him. Turn, O backsliding children, for I am married unto you. It is but reasonable, however, that on her return she should renew her marriage covenant. And this she will do. In those days, and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping they shall go, and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion, with their faces to the word, saying, Come, and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant, that shall not be forgotten. Jeremiah 50, 4, 5 The church has, even in modern times, acted on this principle. We mention one instance, which, though but little known, is worthy to be recorded. We allude to that transaction usually called the auctions or innovation of the covenants. The revolution of 1688 left the British nation deeply involved in the sin of covenant violation. The church partook her full share in the guilt. The few witnesses for a covenanted reformation were, by the defection of their pastors, left as sheep without a shepherd. But the good shepherd remembered them, and sent them ministerial aid. In 1712, with the assistance of John Millen, minister, and John Neal, probationer, they, with great solemnity, renewed their covenants, viewing themselves as called to that work by the defection and covenant breaking of the nation in which they lived, and the church of which they were members. The same reasoning will apply to national covenanting. Nations are subjects of the Lord Jesus Christ. Covenanted nations are married to the Lord. Thy land shall be married. Isaiah 62, 4 Subjects who rebel against their rulers, are required, when subdued, to renew their allegiance. This is a reasonable course among men, and surely no less so in relation to God. Nay, what more reasonable than that the national subjects of Prince Messiah, who have bound themselves to obey him, should, after breach of their obligation, return and renew their oath of fidelity. And without this can they be considered as in a state of voluntary subjection? So far from it that they are justly chargeable with rebellion, so long as they refuse to renew their violated engagements to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the treatment due to rebels, whose guilt is aggravated by perfidy to their covenants, they shall receive kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Psalm 2, 12 As I live, surely mine oath that he hath despised, and my covenant that he hath broken, even it will I recompense upon his own head. Ezekiel 17, 19 The nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish, yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. Isaiah 60, 12 3. When the spirit of lukewarmness prevails, Lukewarmness is always an accompaniment of covenant breaking. God will not grant manifestations of his favor to those who treacherously depart from him. If his spouse refused to hear his voice, and to respond to his call, when in the most melting language he says, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with the dew, and my locks with the drops of the night, he will withdraw himself and a certain result of his withdrawal will be a state of great lifelessness. Love will wax cold. The affections will be set on earthly objects, and a Laodicean spirit will prevail. This is as great a calamity, as can befall either an individual believer or the church. Will be to them when I depart from them. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offenses and seek my face. When such a state of things exists it is a call to carbonating and the soul convinced of insensibility will stir itself up, to take hold of God by renewal of covenant. Every believer, who is endeavoring to walk with God, finds it necessary, in order to preserve the vitality of religion in his own soul, frequently to renew his covenant. This is one consideration that makes the sacrament of the Lord's Supper so dear to the people of God. There, at his table, in partaking of the symbols of the body and blood of Christ, they seal their engagement to be the Lord's. And from the right performance of this duty they derive fresh strength, and increase life and activity in their master's service. And many with whom is the secret of the Lord, avail themselves of other opportunities, to renew their personal covenant. A day of public, family, or personal fasting, is embraced as a suitable time for this important work. 
Some commemorate in this way the day of their birth, while others favored with the knowledge of the time, when they were called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, spend the anniversary of that day in repeating their act of personal dedication to God. And it may be fairly assumed, that religion is not in a flourishing state in that man's soul, who is not frequently employed in this work. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.